so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show here on the America Out Loud Network. I've got some fun stuff to share with you today. Help you keep a grip on reality. Who knew that we would re- we would live in a time where, you know, the war against reality would actually uh, be something we would be a part of. Yeah, I know. You don't you don't even have to volunteer. You're you're drafted automatically. I'm glad you could join us though. Um let's start with a little reality supplement, shall we? Just to kind of set the stage, and then I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about not only the uh, the Roe v. Wade um, controversy and and all the attention right now that is being focused on what very much appears like the Supreme Court is going to overturn the uh, almost 50 year old Roe v. Wade decision, but also we'll discuss a little about whether or not that might be distracting us from other things which could also be very important. I want to start with a. a commentary from James Howard Kunzler, and it's just simply titled Nausea Rules. Now, he's referring to the stock markets, which apparently um, did not have that great of a week. I'm, I, haven't, I haven't looked at the, the stock market uh, numbers to, to follow this out for, for myself, but I know it wasn't good. <laughs> I know there were, there were plenty of long faces. And here's the explanation offered by James Howard Kunzler. He says, the way financial markets puked this week... They must have started reading the news. He says, let's face it, the headlines are a little short of reassuring. That $6.49 price on a gallon of diesel, that's enough alone to tell you that the nation can't do business the way it's set up to do. And there isn't a new model for running things uh, ready to launch, not even Klaus Schwab's utopia of robots and eunuchs. No, he says, what's out there, rather, is a model of breakdown and collapse which the woked-up globalist neo-Jacobins are doing everything possible to hasten. For instance, U.S.-inspired sanctions on Russia have quickly blown up in America's face. He asks, how's that ban on Russian oil working? Do you understand that U.S. shale oil, which is the bulk of our production, is exceptionally light in composition, meaning it contains not much of the heavier distillates like diesel and aviation fuel? Tis so, alas, he says, Truckers won't just just won't truck at six forty nine a gallon, and before long they'll be out of business altogether. Especially the independents who have whopping mortgages on their rigs that won't be paid. So the equation is, is tearfully simple: no trucks equals no U.S. economy. 
Now, Europe, the old original homeland of Western civilization, isn't just losing face. It's blowing its head clean off along with going along with Joe Biden's economic war. Are Germany, France, and the rest of that bunch really so dead set on jamming Ukraine into NATO that they're willing to go full medieval for it? By which I mean sitting in the cold and dark with empty plates? That's a hard way to go just to prove somebody else's point. He says the war in Ukraine itself was apparently losing its sex appeal for the click-hungry news media, no matter which way the New York Times and friends tried to spin it. They failed to grok both Russia's determination to neutralize Ukraine and its ability to get the job done, even if it takes a longer-than-expected grind to the finish. That's how important it was to Russia that Ukraine not become a forward missile base and bioweapons lab for its adversaries. Now, when that operation concludes, the West will be left economically crippled and humiliated, which are conditions that historically portend regime change. Will America cough up Joe Biden like a hairball to get those trucks running again? Might the Dems themselves resort to releasing the Kraken, known as Hunter's Laptop, just to send the old grifter packing? In the meantime, the leaked Roe v. Wade cancellation ruling shoved the Ukraine fiasco offstage so as to provoke more useful histrionics for the dreaded midterm elections upcoming. James Howard Kunstler says the poorly understood truth is that said ruling will only send the abortion question back to the individual states. But let's get real. Places like New York, Massachusetts, Maryland, and California, they're not going to enact any new anti-abortion laws. And that's where most of the people having these breakdowns over the issue live. Which is to say there's little danger that the shrieking denizens of these blue states will lack abortions. So how much has the party only been pretending that Roe v. Wade is its primal touchstone? He says the strange parallel question has been asked, might laissez-faire abortion be a cover for the evident new problem that COVID-19 vaccines have made a shocking number of birthing people incapable of reproducing? There's a buzz about it anyway. It's a fact that Pfizer excluded pregnant and breastfeeding women from all phases of its mRNA trials. And among the various harms now ascribed to the mRNA shots are infertility, miscarriage, and newborn abnormalities. But of course, that sort of rumor, in this case coming from cases among vaccinated military personnel and not so easily hushed up, is just what the many lurking censors want to slap down in any forum where ideas could be exchanged. That's misinformation. And so the derangement knob over Twitter changing ownership stays up at 11. He says, imagine what will happen if the supposedly 70-odd percent of Americans who got vaxxed learn in a re-liberated Twitter zone that the COVID-19 vaccines are not safe and effective. According to Zero Hedge, 26 globalist NGOs with ties to George Soros signed a letter saying, quote, Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter will further toxify our information ecosystem and be a direct threat to public safety, especially among those already most vulnerable and marginalized. End quote. Now, James Howard Kunstler says, look, they are, as usual, projecting. Since what is a greater threat to public safety than inducing tens of millions of frightened citizens to accept multiple shots of a poorly tested pharmaceutical cocktail that can kill you six ways to Sunday? He says the folks in charge and others who would like to be the boss of you don't want you to know any of this. The pharma companies, the doctors, the hospital administrators, and the politicians must be frantic with terror of being found out. 
So James Howard Kunstler concludes by saying altogether, the scene looks like a multidimensional nightmare, broken economy, sinking Western sieve, police state tyranny, vaccine, death and injury, starvation. Oh, there it is. Ah, look at those markets. They're puking again. I'm sorry to start on such a positive note, right? I mean, you were probably thinking, well, hopefully things have turned around and, you know, Brian's here to share the good news. I wish I were. But it is it is what it is in terms of we we have to face the reality, all the things that remain when we wish it were otherwise. And the truth is there's some pretty challenging hills directly in front of us. So let's delve a little bit into some of the, the finer details here. And I want to start by talking about why lockdowns were wrong. With all this focus being uh, directed toward abortion, which has, has predictably rallied the political bases of the Democrats and the Republicans, I worry that we are in danger of memory holding the lockdowns and particularly the people who actually pushed them. And not just the lockdowns, that's that's a big part of it. But I, mean, but I mean the whole, you know, forced vaccinations or mandated vaccinations. Let's punish the, uh, the refuseniks who aren't getting the vax and whatnot. All of that needs to be addressed. And the people who implemented and enforced and backed and promoted those policies really need to be held accountable so they can't do it again because the likelihood of them doing it again now that they know they can get away with it, I think it's a very, very high likelihood. So let's start with a commentary from Bertine Schaefer. On her substack, she points out how, look, even if COVID had been much more dangerous, like, you know, on the order of an Ebola-type virus, the lockdowns still were wrong. And if we don't learn that lesson now, if we don't, if we don't embrace the idea that the lockdowns were wrong and they continue to have been wrong and they destroyed many people's lives and livelihoods, we're going to get them again. Now, what I'm going to share with you, I want you to understand, she posted this in June of 2020, so it's coming up on nearly two years since she posted it. But what she was saying then applies, and she's vindicated, and it's aged very, very well. She says, I'm going to say this over and over and over again. The reason lockdowns were or are a terrible idea is not that COVID-19 is not a very serious threat, Yes, for the vast majority of the population, it's true that it's not a very serious threat, but that's not the point. Even if COVID-19 were airborne Ebola or something even more horrifying, centralized decisions imposed from the top down by people who will never have to pay for the harm they do would still be a terrible solution. Why? Because centralized coercive decision-making is always, always the worst possible way to make decisions. Why? Well, because knowledge problem. You know, no central authority can possibly have the same knowledge that thousands or millions of individuals do about what their wants and their needs and risk tolerances are. Or because calculation problem. In other words, without private ownership and decision-making and the signals that come from that, the people making things can't know how much of what is needed or wanted. But she says mostly because no accountability meaning coercive authorities are never held accountable for their actions. That is the whole foundation of government. And Bertine Schaefer says, we're seeing the results of authoritarian, centralized decision-making in a crisis unfold around us in real time. From an inability to test for COVID-19 because of the CDC's monopoly on testing, 
to shortages of basic items like uh, due to uh, anti-price gouging laws and foolish policies by some private vendors to a massive, unprecedented shutdown of a huge portion of the economy with no rational justification and that will yield untold costs in livelihoods, psychological well-being, and even lives to New York Governor Cuomo's murderous order forcing nursing homes to become death traps for the elderly. Now, she says, it's troubling. I even have to point this out. I feel like I'm living in a massive, dysfunctional family where everybody wants to put the blame anywhere but where it actually belongs, on the abusive parent figure of the state. But she she says, I'm going to keep saying it till the rest of you see what's right in front of you. And I promise not to make fun of you when you finally do. Why? Because this doesn't end with COVID-19. She says one day there will be an even more terrifying threat, and because they've established the precedent of shutting down and controlling our entire lives over this relatively mild one, they will then say, well, whatever you thought of COVID-19, you have to admit this time we're facing an extremely dangerous threat indeed. This time you can't deny that we need the government to step in and save us all. Routine Schaefer says no. We have seen over and over and over again the government stepping in only ever makes things much worse. Humanity can't afford another lesson in this, which is why it's so critical for people to understand this. The lockdowns were not a terrible idea because COVID-19 is not a serious illness. They were a terrible idea because centralized, coercive decision-making is always a terrible idea. We have a whole century of experience to show this. Now we have this living example right in front of us. And she says, please don't let your emotional attachment to the state blind you to this lesson. We really might not survive having to go through it one more time. And she's right in in the sense there, there are still people, and I mean people who favor freedom and wave the flag and sing the national anthem and celebrate freedom. And, you know, we want government to be limited. We want, to be, want it to be in its place who nonetheless buy into the idea that government is, uh, well, it's really an extension of us, and it's, you know, it's part of us, and it's an expression of who we are. We are the government. I mean, can you think of any parasite that you can name in the world? Any parasite. Wouldn't it just be great if that parasite could get you to think that, well, it's a part of me. This tapeworm is, has become a part of me, and it's it's an expression of who I am. No, it's a parasite. And yes, I'm suggesting government, more often than not, behaves as a parasite. The uh, the Okay, I'll just leave it at that. There are good people who work in government. There's an awful lot that aren't. But in its actions, the way that it carries out what it does, government very much resembles a parasite. Let me shift gears here for a moment. Let's let's take a more tangible view of why we can't allow this to be swept under the rug. And it's let's just cast our minds back to a couple of years ago when haircuts were illegal. Jeffrey Tucker has a great article published on the Brownstone Institute's website, brownstone.org. He says, unless we just decide to forget, historians will look back in astonishment. And these are some of the things they're going to recall happened. Healthcare spending declined in a pandemic. People were blocked from houses of worship. Choirs couldn't sing. Drones flew the skies to ferret out and report house parties. Rental cars were fumigated with something. Crossing a state line meant a mandatory two-week quarantine. 
Dentistry was largely banned. And forget elective surgeries. They were banned. And for months, he says, in most parts of the country, from mid-March to about June 2020, if not longer, getting a haircut was illegal. It was a result of disease panic for sure, but more. Uh, Governments decided that they knew the risks better than people, and so they would not allow people to make their own choices. And multitudes of barbers and stylists sat at home while the hair of the people grew longer and longer. Now, he says, many of my friends cut their own hair. Others found speakeasy barbers. In fact, he says, one friend swore me to secrecy as he told a tale of a small barn in a remote place in New Jersey. He'd heard from another friend to knock on the back door. So he tried it. A lady appeared, sat him down in a chair and cut. Five minutes later, she said, $25. He left while making sure that no one saw him. Okay, maybe I'm just weird, but I actually think I would enjoy the the clandestine nature of it. Yes, I'm sneaking off to get my ears lowered, and I have to, you know, make sure I'm not being tailed and make sure that nobody is is monitoring me as as I go in to get this highly illegal action done. Actually, I was very fortunate. I just, I had a next-door neighbor who happened to know how to cut hair and wasn't, you know, worried about, well, do you have a license for that? So I stayed pretty well groomed during the pandemic is my point. Back to Jeff Tucker's article. He says, others asked family members to do the deed to cut their hair for them. Washington Examiner wrote at the time, uh, this virus will surely lead to plenty of unfortunate innovation in hairstyles. Now, the truth that needs to be remembered here is it wasn't the virus that was doing this. It was the law. The law, or was it merely an enforced CDC recommendation, required six feet distance of people, uh, six feet of distance rather, between all people, state and local governments declared haircuts non-essential. As a result, commercial haircuts were abolished de facto. Unless you were a politician who somehow managed to find a salon, and then when you were caught, you just apologized and kept your power. And it was the same in the UK where criminal penalties were applied even long after they became legal again. Now, journalists who wrote about the fiasco, which also covered manicures and pedicures, had to change names to protect the guilty. Now, we're not talking politicians. They're talking about normal people like you and me. Jeffrey Tucker says, for my own part, I managed to find a barber and whisper to friends about how to participate. But he says, I recall the fear, the worry, the sneaking around and the strangeness of it all. Now, maybe it all seems silly, but he says, I can assure you, It was not at the time. Texas Governor Greg Abbott developed a good reputation for opening the state earlier than others, but the reality is he was at the time brutal against salons. In an act of defiance against Governor Greg Abbott's continued shutdown of barbershops and other businesses, two Republican lawmakers sat in a Houston-area salon on Tuesday while getting illegal haircuts, one report said. Here's a quote from that report. Steve Toth from the Woodlands and Representative Briscoe Kane from Deer Park added fuel to the movement against state and locally mandated restrictions, which are intended to slow the spread of COVID-19. On Friday, a sliver of Texas businesses were allowed to reopen after Governor Greg Abbott announced he would let Texas stay at home order expire. The multi-phase reopening plan currently allows some businesses like retail stores, restaurants, movie theaters, and malls to reopen with limited capacity. 
But businesses, including barbershops, hair salons, bars, and gyms, can't reopen yet because Abbott said a team of medical experts has advised them it's still unsafe. Oh, do you remember those days? Yeah, not very pleasant. And, and of course, Texas is where a salon owner was sentenced to seven days in jail. This is from another article. A Texas salon owner was sentenced to seven days in jail on Tuesday after refusing to shut down despite social distancing restrictions requiring her business remain closed amid the coronavirus outbreak. Dallas Judge Eric Moyer held Salon Alamode owner Shelley Luther in criminal and civil contempt of court for refusing to comply with a restraining order issued in late April, according to court documents. He also ordered the company to pay a fine of $500 for every day the salon violated the court's mandate for the business to stay closed. Luther is planning to appeal the decision. Moyer wrote, The defiance of the court's order was open, flagrant, and intentional. The defendants, although haven't been given an opportunity to do so, have expressed no contrition, remorse, or regret for their contemptuous action. Yeah, I remember that. Do you remember what Shelley Luther told the judge? She said, I'm trying to feed my family. If that's so bad that you need to put me in jail, then go ahead and put me in jail. But I'm going to do what I have to do to feed my family. Why, that shows no contrition, remorse, or regret for your contemptuous action. Yeah, the judge uh, basically was was told, okay, you can step off here. Um, And Governor Abbott eventually released Luther from jail. But the fact that she was put in jail in the first place, the fact this became a criminal matter, that should tell you something's pretty wrong. The article, an article in Vox, actually managed to radicalize, uh, racialize rather, the demand that salons open up. Jeffrey Tucker says, "I still can't follow the argument, even though I've read the piece three times. It has something to do with the difference between types of hair and privilege and discrimination, or something like that." And he says, I, "He says I suspect that the thesis is those who wanted haircuts were racist in some way." But the situation was unsustainable. That's the point. So states started opening salons, but with crazy rules that made no sense at all. It was virus control made up on the spot. And as evidence, he says, look at this uh, advisory from Connecticut. Hair salons and barbershops in phase one will open at 50% capacity by appointment only with waiting rooms closed. Services offered will be restricted to hairdressing and eyebrows, nothing that would require re- require removal of a face mask, in other words, beard trimming, lip waxing, etc. Blow drying is not permitted. Yes, no blow drying, since clearly that spreads COVID all over and could lead to mass death. Blowing COVID everywhere. And a 50% capacity, that was a classic move that discriminated against small shops in favor of large ones. The larger the shop, the more the stations, the more people could fit in under a 50% rule. Same was true for restaurants, of course. But it was privilege for large businesses over smaller businesses. He even cites from New York's 10-page advisory that was basically impossible to follow. The point here, Jeff Tucker says, is look... Good luck in finding the science behind all that rigmarole. There never was any. Not one life was saved, or at least no one has demonstrated that that was the case. And in the end, you know what? Most everyone got COVID anyway. All it meant was three months or more of bad hair. Now, it would be worth investigating and and whether and to what extent these preposterous rules contributed to forcing governments to reopen after disastrous lockdowns. But Jeff Tucker says, let's not forget those months when the haircut was illegal. 
And when governments finally allowed them, it didn't allow blow dry, didn't allow blow dryers, and it made customers follow arrows on the floor and use only touchless payment methods. See, that's pandemic control in a nutshell. What a disgrace, he says, this entire period was to science, rationality, human rights, and freedom. And that's the concern that I have as far as, you know, again, abortion or Ukraine, whatever the next thing is that everybody's attention is being focused on. It disturbs me that we're seeing our attention taken away from. Can we hold the people accountable who implemented these lockdown policies and these mandates? They need to be sitting in front of a jury in a courtroom. They need to be answering for what they did a la Nuremberg-type trials. Now, I'm not saying that at the end they need to be, you know, hanged. I'm just saying they need to answer for the harm that they've done. Is that going to happen or not? You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. Surely if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. So you can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both in the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I can tell you one of the greatest pathophysiologic drivers for tiredness and fatigue during the day is poor quality sleep at night. People always focus on how long they slept, but they never think about the quality. And to improve the quality, there's a terrific product. That's the Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement. And what I tell friends and family and patients is take it every night consistently. Uh, It comes in a a convenient bioabsorbable gel pack. Uh, Take it right before you go to bed. Take the gel pack, brush your teeth, go to bed. Its effects are nearly instantaneous and patients get a well-rested sleep continuously day after day, week after week, month after month. 
and then that daytime tiredness and fatigue melts away when there's a greater restful sleep the night before. So give it a try. Go to uh, HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, type in out loud for 20% off your order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hey, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, and you are listening to the America Out Loud Network. I've got kind of a mixed bag here for this segment of the show, so let's just dive right in. So, uh, yeah, apparently misinformation is really a concern to the people in power. And, you know, it's it's not that they're worried that uh, the, that they're being misunderstood. They're worried that you and I, you know, the, the little people, the average person, we are in likely, in, in great likelihood going to encounter information that is so wrong, that is so damaging, that it's actually in our interest for someone in power to step in and prevent that information from ever reaching our eyeballs or our our ears or otherwise, you know, entering our consciousness. And so they unveiled the, uh, well, I just call it the Ministry of Truth, but it's the Disinformation Governance Board, something along those lines. And, And, oh, what an amazing thing. It's part of the Department of Homeland Security. Huh. I mean, it kind of... When you consider that the Department of Homeland Security didn't even exist until after 9-11, more than 20 years ago, it kind of makes you wonder about that whole long game of uh, how do we get people shepherded into, you know, global control. Now, I know, are you suggesting a big conspiracy here? I'm just saying, no, but uh, the the bad decisions that followed 9-11, Homeland Security, by the way, was one of them. They seem to uh, magnify. They seem to uh, metastasize like a cancer. And this is one of the things we get. I like how J.B. Shirk takes on this issue. He asks, do we draw the line at a U.S. Ministry of Truth? And he says, this aspiring dictatorship is getting desperate and dangerous. He says, imagine having complete control over America's corporate news propaganda arm and still feeling vulnerable when it comes to securing the narrative. Imagine having all the big tech censors working for the U.S. intelligence community and the masters of disinformation are still unsure whether they can amply manipulate American opinion. Imagine dedicating a year and a half to persecuting anyone who questions the legitimacy of the 2020 election and learning that more Americans than ever now view that monstrosity as tainted by fraud. Just as a quick aside, by the way, the 2000 Mules movie, as the popularity of that movie starts to get out there and as, as that uh, movie, which apparently shows um, people acting as mules, meaning um, delivering thousands upon thousands of ballots to polling locations in the dead of night. Yeah. It looks like there, there, could, be, there could be some serious questions raised here. And that's why the narrative needs to be controlled, you know, for our benefit. Otherwise, we might doubt the people in charge. (laughs) We can't have that. Imagine this. 
Imagine shamelessly spinning the Capitol breach into an attempted coup d'etat only to find that half the country believes the federal government is in the business of imprisoning political protesters. Imagine spending six years framing Donald Trump as a Russian spy, putting him in constant legal jeopardy with with a rogue Democrat-aligned special counsel investigation, impeaching him for the financial corruption of his political opponents' quid pro quo schemes in Ukraine, and then impeaching him a second time for the crime of free speech in a congressional operation designed to prevent him from ever running for elective office again, only to learn that he is the runaway favorite to win the 2024 Republican presidential primary and handily beating the current occupant of the White House by six points. See, when propaganda, domestic espionage, malicious prosecution, blackmail, and an organized terror campaign of burn, loot, murder, mayhem directed against ordinary Americans fail to subdue the citizen population, what do aspiring totalitarians do next? That's right, friends. Come on down. It's Ministry of Truth time. The same Department of Homeland Security that has never had any interest in securing the homeland. Come right over, international terrorists and drug runners. The border's wide open. Now these uh, these uh, Homeland Security folks will per- will dedicate their malignant resources to censoring so much censoring so much truth that only the government's lies will be heard. So if you can't beat them in the arena of ideas, then beat them into submission with clubs. Cut out their vocal cords, declare them enemies of the state, and round up anyone still standing. That's the deep state way. J.B. Shirk says this whole farce of setting up an all-powerful department of disinformation, whose only purpose, by the way, will be to spread disinformation, would be downright comical if it were given a moment's rest, if we were given a moment's rest to laugh in between the Biden administration's outrageous daily attacks on what's left of the Constitution. The First Amendment, right at the top so no future tyrants could miss it, is obviously meaningless if government censors must first approve acceptable speech. By far and without equivocation, the most important speech deserving of protection from the treachery of government overreach is that speech that the government decries as disinformation. The First Amendment isn't there for the protection of cookie recipes and weather reports, although those are protected too. It's there to make sure that when officials in the federal government betray their oaths and seize illegitimate power for themselves, there are opposing voices that can beat those usurpers down with words before violence becomes inevitable. In truth, he says, the First Amendment is one of ten easy-to-understand, bold-faced instructions from our founding fathers to future generations of Americans that state as simply as possible so that no one has any trouble comprehending their meaning when the republic's survival, when the republic's very survival is at stake. You future Americans, our founders effectively declared, are a free people with expansive liberty limited only by the few delegated powers explicitly written into the Constitution as exclusive duties of the three branches of the federal government. All others belong to either to the respective states or to the people. Is that clear? If not, here's a convenient list of government limitations and guaranteed freedoms, although by no means a complete description of Americans' inalienable rights and liberties that you must keep an eye on in order to ensure that your government does not descend one day into despotism and tyranny, as all forms of government inevitably do. We will call these the Bill of Rights. 
And if you catch your government abridging or striking down any of these basic American liberties, then it's time to act. Set forth in item one so that you understand their importance to our overall design in protecting you from abusive government are free speech, freedom of the press, the free exercise of religion, freedom of assembly, and the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. In case of emergency, in other words, a tyrant has risen to squash your freedom of speech, break glass immediately, for you are under attack. Now, on to item two. You get the point. So that's the First Amendment in a nutshell. It's the first and most important item in a 10-point checklist, helpfully provided to eight Americans in determining when their government has lost all legitimacy. So if the words we write today are illegal tomorrow, then peace and freedom are made illegal too. And it's become quite clear that the intelligence deep state dictating U.S. policy is convinced that the Chinese communist model is ideal. The officers of the federal government have sworn oaths to defend the First Amendment, but instead they treat free thought and free expression as threats to their power. They do not respect dissent. They do not protect, as is their duty, unsanctioned political protest. They actively work with private companies to censor speech and opinion. They actively work with tech companies to manipulate public opinion and propagate blatant lies. They actively spy on the American people. They harass and intimidate those who have the courage of their convictions. They criminalize the constitutional rights of citizens and commit crimes under the color of their constitutional authority. So he says, let me ask a simple question. Will there ever be an end to these government trespasses? Is it truly possible for America to only dip a couple of toes into the police state pools without sinking into the depths of despotism? Can the government really cut the Chinese communist baby in half or select only a handful of new totalitarian tools to enforce upon the American people like some a la carte assortment of unconstitutional hors d'oeuvres? The answer is of course not. There are no halvesies with totalitarianism. Once you toss out the First Amendment, the Constitution is soon dead-letter law. J.B. Shirk says if America is to survive, we must not misunderstand this serious moment. Americans must not let their freedoms slip away in silence. He says the Rubicon lies ahead, and the federal government must turn around before it's too late. Those who would abuse their power, they can silence any of us at any time but they cannot silence all of us at all times. And so his advice is do not go quietly. I think that's some pretty uh, solid advice there. Speaking of not going quietly, do you care enough about the planet to starve yourself to death? Because <laughs> I don't. But I've got a great article here from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education about how destroying food to fight climate change is nothing more than madness. He says what's happening in Northern Ireland is part of a uh, larger push to wean humans off red meat, particularly beef, which apparently we consume to the tune of 350 million tons each year. So, John Miltimore writes, on Earth Day, a 50-year-old environmentalist and photographer from Colorado named Wynne Allen Bruce lit himself on fire outside the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, friends of Bruce, who subsequently died, said he was worried about climate change. 
This guy was my friend, said Kriti Kanko, a senior scientist at Environmental Defense Fund. This was not an act of suicide. This was a deeply fearless act of compassion to bring attention to climate crisis. Apparently, he had been planning it for at least one year. Now, Bruce's act of immolation is one example of increasing fear of climate change, says John Miltimore. It's a fear that's damaging humans in various ways, including a surge in so-called climate anxiety. And that fear is also manifesting itself in other ways, including the realm of public policy. For instance, many countries around the world are aggressively pursuing net-zero carbon emission plans designed to mitigate the effects of global warming. So while people tend to think of reducing emissions involving shutting down coal plants or driving more electric vehicles, relying more on solar and wind power, each of which comes with environmental and economic costs, these are not the only policies on the table. Increasingly, governments are targeting a different emission source, food, livestock specifically. And the reasons for this aren't exactly hard to find. No less an authority than the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, notes that about one-third of climate warming from greenhouse greenhouse gases stems from human-caused emissions of methane. So while CO2 gets more attention, the EPA notes that methane is actually a more potent greenhouse gas, trapping about 30 times as much heat as CO2 over a century. Now a new law in Northern Ireland sets a target of zero net emissions by 2050. And the BBC reports the legislation includes a proposed 46% reduction in methane emissions. Since about a third of human-caused methane gases come from livestock, Northern Ireland is looking at a huge reduction of farm animals, especially sheep and cattle, in order to meet that goal. The Guardian recently reported Northern Ireland will need to lose like that phrasing, need to lose more than a million sheep and cattle to meet its new legally binding climate change emissions targets. Specifically, according to estimates from the Ulster Farmers Union, some 500,000 cattle and roughly 700,000 sheep would have to be lost in order for Northern Ireland to meet the new climate targets. So while the pig and poultry sectors will also need to be cut to meet emissions targets, Climate officials said these sectors are less harmful to the environment than red meat livestock. Yua Kimatowicz, head of the land use mitigations team at Climate Change Committee, told The Guardian, if you look at the evidence on the life cycle of greenhouse gas emissions, the red meat livestock sources, beef, dairy, sheep, have the highest emissions because they're ruminant and they have high methane emissions. Now, Chris Stark, who's the Climate Change Committee <clears throat> chief executive, told The Guardian that a switch to, avo- to arable farming would be likely necessary in order to maintain food production levels. You understand what that means? Let them eat synthetic beef. So what's happening in Northern Ireland, says John Miltmore, is actually part of a much larger push to wean humans off red meat, particularly beef, which humans consume to the tune of 350 million tons a year. Many people, including Microsoft founder Bill Gates, have argued nations have a responsibility to transition off beef for environmental reasons. Gates said in an interview with MIT Technology Review last year, I do think all rich countries should move to 100% synthetic beef. 
you can get used to the taste difference, and the claim is they're going to make it taste even better over time. Now, Gates doesn't really explain how this transition should occur, but we're beginning to see. While there's no question that global temperatures are rising, 14% per decade on average, people should find the efforts by central planners to curb climate change more alarming than those rising temps. Such policies have the earmarks of the failed collectivist programs of, of the past, like FDR's porcine slaughter of the innocents, which saw menacing, millions rather of pigs and sows destroyed while people were going hungry, all in an attempt to keep the prices high. FDR's mad program was child's play, however, compared with Chairman Mao, who had plans to revolutionize China's agricultural sector with his great leap forward. But things didn't go as planned. And it turned out that food production was more complex than Mao anticipated. Here's a commentary from Britannica Online. Quote, the inefficiency of the communes and the large-scale dis- diversion of farm labor into small-scale industry disrupted China's agriculture seriously and turned three consecutive years of natural calamities added and three consecutive years rather of natural calamities added to what quickly turned into a natural National disaster, rather, in all about 20 million people estimated to have starved to death between 1959 and 1962. Did you catch that? 20 million people died under Mao's collectivist effort. Nor was this the first man-made famine created by socialists. In 1932 and 1933, millions of Ukrainians died in a famine engineered by the Soviet Union. Historian Andrea Graziosi, a professor at University of Naples, says in the case of the Holodomor, this was the first genocide that was methodically planned out and perpetrated by depriving the very people who were producers of food of their nourishment. The genocide, Graziosi notes, was not just tragic, but it was also ironic in that it took place in a region globally recognized as the breadbasket of Europe. Now, John Miltimore says these accounts remind us of a dark and disturbing reality highlighted by economist Thomas Sowell. Sowell observed many of the greatest disasters of our time have been created by experts. In his Nobel Prize, uh, Nobel Prize acceptance speech, the economist F.A. Hayek explained that such disasters stem from the lack of humility among central planners about the knowledge or lack thereof they possess in their fatal striving to control society. And above all else, Hayek said the role of economics is to temper such grand plans. The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to humans how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. Hayek observed this in his book, The Fatal Conceit. Attempting to curb climate change by destroying food supplies may not appear quite as crazy as lighting oneself on fire in front of the Supreme Court in order to protest a lack of government action on climate change but it may ultimately prove to be even more deadly. Boy, if you take into account all the things that are being done right now to, to put pressure on food supply lines, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the, um, I'm, I'm not just talking about the high price of gas, you know, and trucking. That's having its toll. But if you've been paying attention, there is a perfect storm of food shortages coming our way. And, and, the, and the thing is, it's not just, well, it's just an accident. Suddenly this plague of locusts came out of nowhere. And before that, there was the hailstorm of burning rocks. And No, no, we're not talking about, you know, biblical plagues. 
This appears to be engineered destruction of the supply chains. For instance, why is it that Union Pacific Railroad is refusing to ship, you know, more than just a very a greatly reduced, like one-third the amount of fertilizer that farmers normally would, would be having shipped out? What about, uh, you know, oh, the sanctions against Russia? This is adding to the costs of fertilizer and some of the basic products from which fertilizer is made. I mean, we are looking at uh, you know Ukraine. I don't think many farmers are planning right now in Ukraine, given that uh, there's a war going on and resources are being diverted left and right. And then you have to take into account, and I know this is going to sound a little nutty, but uh, I'll put it out there anyway. Is it just me? Or does there, does, there, does there seem to be a weird pattern of major food processing facilities catching fire, having explosions, or otherwise being shut down due to some sort of disaster, you know, taking place there at the business. Because depending on the articles that you look at, it's anywhere from a dozen or so to maybe a couple of dozen, and we're talking major food processing facilities that are out of commission. Now, I understand this is kind of scary stuff, and I, I'm, my goal here is not to, to leave you wallowing in fear, but just to point out, it looks like there's some very deliberate policies that are being taken undertaken right now to crash the economy, to drive the prices up on things, to make fuel very prohibitively expensive. Oh, yes, well, we'll just put the farmers out there on electric tractors, and we're going to have the trucks delivering with electric uh, batteries. And Yes, and where is the power going to come from? What's, what's going to be used to generate that power? Why, wind and solar. Mm, no, no, that's, we're, we're not quite at that point. Well, then we'll just uh, use those coal-fired... Oh, yes, the fossil fuels, <laughs> the ones that we're supposedly getting away from. And, and just as an aside, this is something else for your consideration. When it comes to climate change, maybe it's time to take a little closer look at what's happening um, in terms of how the sun affects not just our climate, but the climate of every planet within our solar system. Suspicious Observers is a YouTube channel that does daily, roughly three to five minute long videos talking about what's going on with the sun, you know, what are the uh, coronal mass ejections taking place, the sunspot activity and so forth. And and for some people, I mean, I grant you, some scientists are going to be like, well, that's just out there on the fringes. I'd say take a watch and see what you think. A lot of the jargon goes over my head. I'm not a scientist. But a lot of it makes sense in terms of there, there are solar cycles and the magnetism and electromagnetism of the sun can greatly affect our own planet. What if there's the possibility that we are in one of those cycles right now? What if there is actually a magnetic polar shift about to take place on Earth? And apparently it has taken place before, but when it happens, it causes immense climate change. As in, yes, there is... There are tropical fossils under the ice of uh, Antarctica. Just a little something to think about. I'm not telling you it's, this is the case. Here, have some tinfoil. Put this on. Otherwise, they'll read, their mind, read your, your thoughts. I'm just suggesting that maybe there's another way to look at this that uh, might shed a little more light. All right. Speaking of shedding a little more light, just want to take a, one last little sojourn here and talk about why social issues seem to dominate. When you consider everything that's going on around us, isn't it weird that, you know, abortion is what really gets, you know, people fired up out of their chairs and on their feet? 
Jeff Deist, writing for uh, for Mises.org, talks about how inflation in the U.S. is at 40-year highs. Interest rates on 10-year Treasury notes just hit 3%, signaling trouble for home buyers. Truck drivers are paying more than $1,000 to fill their rigs with $5 per gallon gas, $5 per gallon, for $5 per gallon diesel, rather, to deliver your increasingly expensive groceries and Amazon packages. Crime and homelessness skyrocket in large cities, exacerbated by virulent op- opioids like fentanyl and crocodile. And America's proxy war with Russia in Ukraine is, of course, giving rise to the most serious threats of nuclear strikes against the West since the 1960s. Yet, he says, so-called social issues, from abortion to critical race theory to teaching gender identity in elementary schools, dominate our politics and media. And he says, virtually every voter has a strong opinion on these issues, pays far more attention to them than, say, the M2 money supply or the next Fed Open Market Committee meeting, even though the latter could have a far greater impact on that voter's life and finances. So why is that? Why are we so caught up on the social issues rather than some of the the bigger, weightier issues like keeping food on the table, keeping the economy going? And the short answer is the Supreme Court. I mean, when this announcement was made, I think it was on Monday, about the leaked draft opinion, allegedly from a Supreme Court Associate Justice Samuel Alito, portending the overturning of Roe v. Wade, suddenly you had paroxysms of anger and fear across the media spectrum, especially on social platforms like Twitter. Protesters quickly arrived at the newly fenced-off Supreme Court building, and the commentariat began enumerating the predictable dire threats for the future of women posed by a Trumpian right-wing court. And Jeff Deist's point here is we don't see these outbursts when Congress spends $5 trillion on stimulus or when the Fed quadruples its balance sheet, even when gas prices double. That should tell you a little bit something, a little bit of something about the power balance in the U.S. these days. The court has become the de facto super legislature for all 50 states. That's not in keeping with its constitutional parameters. Now, the political class, he says, pretends otherwise, but the stridency of its denunciations against conservative court nominees and its slavish support for progressive nominees demonstrates the irretrievably political nature of granting a handful of justices such power over the lives of 330 million people. In such a top-down, winner-take-all environment, the stakes become needlessly high, and politicized in the nastiest ways imaginable. So, of course, presidential elections and the resulting makeup of the court become matters of life and death for the true believers whose sense of identity is rooted in the social issues ruled upon by the court. He goes into some details as to how the court, uh, you know, became kind of the super legislature. But I want to skip to the end here. He says, mass democracy... Under shifting rules, often determined by nine politicized judges, is not a prescription for harmony and goodwill among 330 million very diverse Americans. Those millions don't much agree about guns, God, abortion, and plenty more. But here's the key. They don't have to agree. In a post-liberal, good-faith environment, aggressive federalism, that would mean states' rights, and realistic discussion of political secession, 
are the obvious path forward. If you claim to love your fellow Americans, unyoke them from the federal super state and demand the same for yourself. <clears throat> Jeff Deist says the universalist totalitarian totalizing impulse, which resulted in the dramatic centralization of state power through the 20th century, must be reversed in the 21st. The other way lies political strife and worse. And I think part of it comes down to at the individual level. So here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. You and I have got to train ourselves to not reflexively go along with the idea that if there's a problem, oh, there's a problem, government should be the one solving it. Because there are many things that can be solved at a local level, even at an individual level. But the trouble is, the people who recognize this, well, you know, I could solve that, but I feel like I need to get permission from government. And when you go to government for permission, first of all, it'll make you pay for the privilege of doing what you have a perfect right to do anyway. Or it will implement a program which will cost you in terms of taxes, cost you in terms of freedom, and will become entrenched as part of the bureaucracy, which then goes on to rule everything. I mean, take a look at, again, at the COVID policies and tell me that that's not the case. So don't ever let the words, there ought to be a law, escape your lips. If we want to be problem solvers, we've got to be problem solvers at the lowest possible level. Now, there may be some things which are big enough that it's, it's legitimate to call upon government you know, to help to solve those problems. It's going to take some collective effort. But too many of the problems, I'm putting that in air quotes, that, that we're working on solving through government today simply become job security for bureaucrats in this agency or that agency or this branch of government to, to work on endlessly. And can you blame them? They make very good money. Their benefits are excellent. excellent. The retirement is good. I mean, you put me in those circumstances and pay me a healthy salary? Absolutely. I'll work on that problem as long as you'll let me. Which, of course, means the problem is never going to be actually solved. Oh, no, I'm working on it. And we're making great progress. Why, let's pull together a committee to report on our great progress. You get the idea. You are listening to The Disciples of Liberty. And this is the America Out Loud Network. <laughs> 